Hello, and welcome to the People Who Read People podcast. I'm Zach Elwood. This episode will be an interview with Benjamin Moots, who spent 15 years in prison for second-degree murder. A few things I wanted to note about this interview before starting. First thing, we did have some technical difficulties with the audio, so the first half has some pretty bad audio issues, while it does get a bit better in the second half. And just wanted to say sorry about that. I'm still learning about the many things that can go wrong with online recording. Second thing, I wanted to point out that I do edit these podcasts. The complete interview with Ben was three and a half hours, and the final edit is about an hour and a half. Seeing as this is a pretty serious and personal topic that Benjamin's talking about, I just wanted to point out that I do edit these episodes. And... I wanted to give a quick synopsis of the interview. We start out talking about the circumstances that led to Ben being charged with second-degree murder, and then we talk about his prison experiences. If you want to skip to him talking about the prison experiences, that starts around 16 minutes in. Hello, and welcome to the People Who Read People podcast. I'm Zachary Elwood. Today is July 21st, 2019. Today I'll be talking to Benjamin Moots, who spent 15 years in prison, mostly in maximum security settings. In 1995, Ben pled guilty to a second-degree murder charge of a man in Florida. Ben was 19 years old. Another man was also convicted of second-degree murder for that crime. Ben went to several prisons, and most of his stay was in maximum security settings. The prisons included Appalachie Correctional Institution for four years. That was in Florida. Six years in Calhoun Correctional Institution, also in Florida and four years in Missouri Eastern Correctional Center, also known as Pacific Prison. I know Ben through Twitter and through him being a poker player. We've talked on and off on Twitter over the last few years. And in this interview, we'll be focusing on behavior and psychology in prison. I'll be asking questions about how prison forces you to act and think in different ways and maybe notice certain behaviors and patterns that you wouldn't normally notice. So we'll be talking about the threat of violence, indicators of potential trouble, how to stay out of trouble and stay safe, things like that. So hello, Ben. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks a lot for being willing to talk about this. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on and being willing to talk about things that a lot of people wouldn't be willing to talk about. So yeah, greatly appreciate it. No problem. So uh, yeah, we'll get started with the uh, questions here. Can you give a synopsis of how you ended up in prison? I started uh, college fairly early. Uh, I was always in the gifted program at school. I wound up having too many behavioral problems. Uh, School wasn't really challenging me. Plus the school district I went to was like high class. And uh, I wasn't exactly from the same economic area. It was like one of the outlying suburb farm areas in Missouri. And uh, I just didn't, I didn't really fit in. And so social life at school was very challenging. In ninth grade, uh, the assistant principal that I had had as a teacher previously uh, recommended to me and my parents that they sign me out of uh, school early, which at at the time, I don't know what the laws are now. If you were under 16, you had to have a parent guardian sign you out. So we had a contract where I would start uh, college classes if uh, they signed me out of school. And I did the first semester of uh, community college after getting my GED when I was 15. And at that time, my parents moved down to Florida. 
And I stayed in Missouri to uh, finish that uh, college semester uh, living with my grandparents. After it was over, I followed uh, my parents down to Florida and, you know, things really weren't going very well. Uh, Both of them drank a lot, had their own problems and, you know, home life really wasn't peaceful for me and I wanted to escape that. So I wound up uh, figuring out that I could uh, apply as a transfer student, get through a lot of the red tape and the uh, residency uh, requirements for freshmen by going to the University of Missouri in Columbia. So I moved back to Missouri. Uh, after about like two, two and a half years, I wound up doing a lot of drugs, um, marijuana, smoking every day, uh, doing hallucinogenics, um, anything that I could really try to get my hands on. And uh, it wasn't good for my grades at all. Uh, so I wound up uh, getting an academic suspension and had to move back down to Florida when I was 19. Um, I go down there and, you know, I'm still caught up in like the same kind of uh, behavior with uh, a lot of the drugs, a lot of the people that do drugs. Uh, Florida is really got like a very shady criminal underside. So I wound up really hanging around some of the wrong people. I have been selling ecstasy and uh, LSD and marijuana in order to uh, get by, uh, pay bills, have money to do things. I was hanging around this one guy that was uh, really new to the local scene. So it was like between, you know, my connections of people that I knew and run off, run into and as the source. And he was the one that was uh, selling the narcotics. So we had developed a, a working partnership over a couple of months. And uh, one night I was hanging out with brother. Uh, I think he was closer to my age. Didn't really know much about the guy. He'd always been really, really quiet, would sit at his, uh, sit at the kitchen table and draw like some of the most fantastic artwork that you could see a person do. Just really talented like that. But uh, he always seemed a little off. One night, uh, the friend of mine was um, at, a, at a club selling some drugs and he had me wait at the apartment like I would normally do, uh, keep an eye on his brother, just hang out and wait for him to come back. So I had uh, sampled some of the drugs, wound up doing uh, like four hits of LSD, snorted some cocaine, was smoking some weed, just hanging out. Out of the blue, this kid asked me, it's like, um, you know, the guy that's in the neighborhood that's been killing and torturing cats, he's like, why don't we go beat him up? And, uh, you know, due to the LSD, I had really hit that period where you're peaking and you think everything is really funny. And it, it just sounded like a great idea. So uh, he, he started making plans to meet up with this guy and to get him to come out and meet us um, called him and told him that, uh, we had what he was looking for and, uh, come through and, uh, talk to him about it. The original idea and plan was just to beat this guy up. You know, that's really the extent of what I knew, what I was in for. I had like a little hand, uh, barbell, uh, just a pole, 
maybe weighed like a pound or something like that that I had grabbed in case I needed it. You know, the guy was pretty built, athletic. And he had been and, uh, uh, killing cats. Or was that was that a definite? Yeah, definitely. Definite there was yeah, there was a string of uh, animal disappearances. Uh, you know how people talk in the area, and everything was really blamed on this guy. You know, I can't say that I saw the behavior with my own eyes can verify 100. percent That was the word on the on the street. Yeah, yeah definitely had known about this story. It was something that came up often, and when talking about the guy, you know how stories come up about people. So, but for the record, it could have, for all you know, it could have just been a false rumor. It could have been. I mean, it's definitely not impossible. But um, so, so we go after after the kid that I'm with uh, makes contact with the guy. He's like, "Yeah," he said, "We go pick him up." And uh, you know, we were supposed to do like some kind of drug deal and uh, run around. So we drive after picking him up. We drive to where we told him we were going which was like a secluded beach road in Cocoa Beach area. From what I heard, it was like uh, down this road was a house that the quarantined uh, astronauts on prior to leaving when they still had that procedure down there. But I mean, it was an empty road. So I, you know, I get out of the car and we act like we're going to go walk to this house. And I confront the guy about these allegations. And I told him, I'm like, you know, uh, everybody is saying, and, you know, the word is that you're responsible for torturing and killing, you know, all the small animals in the neighborhood. You know, he just, I was very, very high at the time. And I remember him, you know, protesting that, uh, you know, that didn't really have anything to do with, you know, what we had got him out of the, out of the house for. And, um, arguing about this turned into a fight and I had punched him and, uh, just kept hitting him several, several times and, uh, used this light, uh, metal bar in my hand and hit him enough times to knock him down and knock him out. I walked away after thinking, you know, that was a good resolution to the situation. You know, the guy wasn't in any mortal danger or anything else, but uh, we had got away from the car. So at this point, the LSD that I had taken was really very strong in my system. You know, I'm seeing like colors moving, tracers, you know, things are going. I, I make it to the car and I turn it around and I had to come back down the road a little ways and uh, I, I, I clear a little hill and all I can really remember, and it's one of the most vivid uh, recollections that I have over anything is seeing my co-defendant, the kid that I was with, sitting on top of this guy on the road with a knife pressed, you know, behind his ear. And uh, it's like both of them looked at me you know, and shine in the headlights. And next thing I know, I watch this knife disappear. And this kid, like, stab him, you know, several times in that location. I don't know if it's, like, actual spirit world stuff, the LSD, but 
I remember thinking that I saw this guy's soul leave through his mouth after this happened. And it just shocked me. And, you know, I was like petrified and terrified. This is not what was supposed to be happening. You know, I think we came to beat this guy up. And next thing I know, you know, I'm watching a kid sit on top of him and stab him and kill him. And it's in the road. I have to stop in order to even get anywhere. And I have no clue what to do. I'm like completely in shock. You know, the kid's like, you know, we got to drag him out of the, drag him out of the road. So I'm just like, I'm frozen. You know, I'm completely doing whatever this guy says. You know, I don't know what's going on. You know, whether it's like the, the drugs has me numb, the, the shock of what's going on. It was just like a crazy situation to find myself in. And uh, I help him drag him away. And, you know, this, this guy that I'm with starts telling me, he's like, look, you know, this is, I know that you didn't know anything about this. And, you know, starts trying to reassure me that, you know, this is my idea. I will take responsibility. Don't be scared of anything else. I don't know what to do. You know, I just feel I'm going with the flow in this situation, you know. So we wind up uh, going back to the, this kid's apartment that he shared with a friend of mine and stop along the way to. So you take that you're taking the um, the dead body. No, we just drug it out of the road out into like the tree brush cover that was on both sides of it and drove off from there. You know, we stopped to like on this bridge to throw the knife that this kid had and the uh, little dumbbell bar thing that I was carrying to throw that off. And uh, we get back to his apartment you know, this kid takes over and he's telling me, he's like, look, um, you know, the homicide detectives come, we'll tell them that um, he saw this guy that he had a previous altercation with. Um, and trying to frame, frame the other guy. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, you know, whatever, as long as it's not me. And um, how, how old was uh, the, the other guy uh, that, you're, that you're with at that time? You, I know you're 19. How old was he? I think he? that the victim and the other kid were both like 22, 24. Okay. But uh, I wind up staying at this kid's house for the night. And um, first thing I remember in the morning was uh, uh, homicide detectives had showed up at the uh, door of the apartment and uh, this kid gets up and answers the door and they tell him that they want to talk to him about uh, this guy disappearing and his roommate saying that uh, we were the last people to be seen. You know, he was supposed to come with us. And uh, this kid goes on like a schizophrenic rant and tells him like, I am the demon Abaddon and yeah, some, some crazy stuff. So they ask, they, I, I don't really hear like the full conversation. But they immediately, they, they get him and they put him in cuffs, like, immediately. And uh, they, they see me and uh, they wanted to talk to me as well. And I wound up uh, going with them to answer their questions. 
So I cut out a decent section of interview here where Ben talks about his arrest in the trial. I'll summarize this part here. Based on the facts of the case in Florida law, his attorney recommended Ben to plead guilty to third-degree murder, which would have been around a 7-10 to year sentence. The prosecutor and the judge weren't happy with that. The coroner's report was very negative for Ben, saying that it wasn't clear what caused the death, whether it was the beating or the stab wounds. Ben says he thinks that the report was probably unfairly biased towards him, but at the time their attorney said that trying to fight the coroner's report would take a lot of financial resources, and he thought he could get a good plea deal for second-degree murder. Ben was in county jail for 10 months until his trial. The judge ended up giving the maximum sentence possible, which was 21 years and 8 months. Both Ben and the other defendant were sentenced the same. This was a big blow to Ben, who had started out thinking he might be getting somewhere around 7 to 10 years, and then maybe, when the first plea was rejected, only a bit more than that. Ben said that he heard through his lawyers that his co-defendant had had previous mental health and violence issues and was receiving mental health treatment in jail. Ben said that his own criminal record was clean at that time. Next, I talked to Ben a bit about county jails versus prison. A quick synopsis of this. County jails are where people stay when they're waiting for trial. When they're convicted and sentenced, they go to prison. Ben said his county jail experience was much more pleasant than his state prison experience. But this can apparently vary a lot, depending on the region and how much violent crime is in the area. There are lots of stories about how some county jails are the worst places to stay, due to lack of proper facilities, lack of funds, and just a lot of violence in that area. But in Ben's case, due to the region of Florida he was in, it was a safer, better experience than the prisons he'd spend time in. And that's probably the case for most county jails. So uh, let's talk a little bit about when you first went into the the county jail, when you were first arrested, how much fear um, did you have and how did it play out in comparison to what your you know expectations or fears were? You know, in the back of my mind, there was always that fear that, you know, this is a complete different world. You know, people have different ways of doing things. I mean, we've all seen the, the prison shows, the, the shows where people are in jail and the reputation, the stereotype is, is that, you know, there's a lot of violence and sexual assault and things like that, that you have to fear from. And I mean, I was a young person at the time, you know, 19, 20 years old when I was there, you know, people in these scenarios, I mean, even the county jail, you know, people want to push your boundaries and see where you're at. And that's to a lot of people as part of what they're supposed to be doing in jail is, you know, finding out who the weak people are, who could be pushed around and, you know, there's nothing to do. I mean, you got 50 guys in a dormitory that get a TV for a couple hours a day and, you know, a couple of phones to fight over who gets to use. And so the county jail was a, was a more communal setting. It, I mean, it's equivalent to a prison setting. Uh-huh. So you had a, you had a cellmate. Yeah. I had a few, you know, you, there's less stability. I mean, people, come in, they get out right away. They come in, they, they go to court, get sentenced. So it's a more turnover, more change in the population than what you normally have in, you know, your prison dormitory that, you know, people are usually there and they could be there for years and 
y'all get to know each other and become family. And so, how much open like interaction with other you know inmates would you have in the in the county jail versus the prison? Like, was there a you know how many hours a day were you theoretically like in proximity to other other people? Um, most of the time is um, open. Uh, the you know you have two person cells. At least the one that I was at. I mean, it could vary. Uh, lower security, if your charges are minor, might be a dormitory setting to where you don't even have uh, private cells. Some county jails have four-man, eight-man cells. But you spend most of your day with the ability to go out into the common area where there's phones and tables and you know, you go out and you get your meals out there. And so from, say, like breakfast time, six in the morning, whatever, with the exception of count or shift change, they might lock you in your cell for 15, 20, 30 minutes a couple times during the day. Uh, the most part you have open from like 6 to 10 p.m. at night. So you're only really locked and confined in the cell for, you know, eight hours a day for the sleeping period. Did your lawyer or anyone else give you advice on best ways to be in prison? Was that anything anyone talked about or was it just you were on your own in regards to preparing for that? Pretty much on your own. I don't think that my attorney gave me any kind of pointers or how to deal with the situation. I mean, it's pretty much you you live and you learn. And you were a, you're a pretty big guy. Did that factor into you feeling more comfortable going in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not that I'm a top prize fighter or anything, but size definitely helps with perception and it helps with uh, people in those scenarios. I mean... I guess people think that you're more intimidating and more capable of doing them harm and you're a lot less likely to be a pushover if you're a big person. How, how tall were you and how much did you weigh? I'm 6'4", and at the time I weighed about 300. Uh-huh. Wasn't in great shape, but it was big enough that, you know, at the very least, if I knock you over and sit on you, you're going to have a problem. And uh, as far as the uh, the shanks, the shivs, I'm assuming you saw a lot more of that kind of stuff in the uh, in the prison setting than in the county jail. Yes. Did you see any in, in county jail or was that real? No, rare? I didn't see anything like that in the county jail. I mean, where we were at, you know, we didn't leave our one specific dormitory area, the wing. So nobody was doing any outside work. Nobody was in the kitchen. Toothbrushes were like an inch and a half long. There, there really wasn't anything that you could make something like that out of in a county jail. Once you got in county jail, the 10 months you spent there, did you see anything that was disturbing that, that really changed your perception? Or did that come later in, in prison setting? Yeah, I had a couple different incidents that gave me some things to think about. I had one uh, cellmate that was a serial killer. I was no, I was really nervous at first, you know, because nobody really knows, you know, what somebody's case details are until you see it on the news or the newspapers or the mm -hmm. the guards talk about it or somebody divulges their own information. But uh, I get this older gentleman assigned to my cell and, you know, he seemed really unassuming. I mean, it could be somebody's grandfather. 
then we see on the news when uh, they talk about him being arrested, he was suspected of being a, a serial killer. And um, he eventually talked to me about it that night and explained the, the, the story. Here Ben described the serial killer and his crimes. The man had killed approximately 20 prostitutes and had buried 11 on his property. He had run out of room on his property and buried seven or eight women elsewhere. Ben was cellmates with this man for about four months in the county jail. Let's talk about uh, going to prison. Was that another big uh, moment when you felt like, oh, this is going to be much different, more dangerous? Yeah, I was definitely terrified. I mean, from all of the conversations that you have with people that had been in prison previously, and then a lot of people come back from the prison, get housed at the county jail when their appeals come up or they come back for some kind of court or additional charges and they tell stories about how things are and the way things go. In the county jail, I think you feel like you're definitely under observation to a higher degree than what you would think about in prison anyways, and lots more different situations. Plus, because of my age, uh, one of the things that people really like using to judge your reaction two things is to confront you with the fact that like, okay, well, if you're going, you're going to have to deal with this. People are going to try to rape you and people are going to try to do this and that and whatever it is, just to see how you respond to that kind of news, Mm -hmm. what kind of response or rise they can get out of you. Right. Just trying to scare you verbally. Yeah. Yeah. Again, with the prison, um, the first day and getting in there and then looking back on it, how much did your fears and imagination align with the the reality after spending some time there? I think that I definitely made it out to be way worse in my mind than what it really was. Not that not that it was, you know, some great land of milk and honey to go to, but from where I was at. Uh, definitely felt like, you know, you have some more privileges, you have some more freedom, finally get to go outside instead of like an hour or two once a week. And and this is maximum security prison, is that right? Yeah, but when you, after you've been sentenced and you go into a prison system, at least the, the states that I've been into, and I think it's probably like fairly common practice is they have a reception center, diagnostic center, where uh, you get a chance for them to make some observations about your behavior, uh, to talk to you, do some educational testing, and and see what kind of facility that you need to be sent to based upon security needs, health needs, mental health needs. And definitely some places are more violent and have different cultures than others. So... It seems like they try not to send somebody that is a low-level, mild-mannered, nonviolent person to your most maximum security prison with a high degree of violence and you know a lot meaner, stronger culture than what they need to be in. Right. So even though this was, these were maximum security prisons, but there was there's still uh, several gradients of security within that. Exactly. Maximum security. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you had been more aggressive, violent in county jail, they might have sent you to a a more hardcore 
place. Exactly. And plus when, when, even when I first got to uh, the reception diagnostic center, I was not even 21 years old yet. So for the next year until I turned 21, even once I moved on from the um, reception center, I was sent to a prison that had a segregated under 21 dormitory and we didn't really interact with the adult population. Ben then told a story about when he first left county jail and was put into the reception center area of the prison, which was where inmates younger than 21 were placed for their safety. Ben says he'd gotten a distorted view of what prison life would be like from people's stories in the county jail. He had a belief that inmates had a lot of control of the prison, and he thought it was standard to be very aggressive in standing up for yourself. These things weren't as true as he had been led to believe. At that time, the reception area guards were only letting the inmates out into the yard only once a week, instead of every day, which was usually the norm. One day, when their group was moving between doorways, Ben refused to go back into the dormitory, and other inmates joined him in refusing to go back in. He said this created a big escalated situation with around 30 people joining him. The others eventually went back in, though, and he was the only one left. He was tackled and put in confinement and was charged with inciting a riot which was his first disciplinary infraction. My first month there, I've already established that I'm going to be the troublemaker. Did you have kind of a, a leadership role? I mean, were you perceived as kind of a leader because you were older and, and bigger amongst those kids? Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely how it worked. And plus, you know, based upon this preconception that I had about how you're supposed to behave and react that I took to acting within this role as part of establishing my identity in the group. The, the stereotype about prison is, you know, you have to be a bit aggressive in order to get by. Was that a role in, in how you held yourself? In I, you know, what's, what's really strange is it started out being like that. I mean, prior to incarceration, that definitely wasn't who I was. You know, I was more of the introvert, read my books all day, you know, get straight A's type person. And in prison, what started out as a role for survival after so many years became a part of who I was. I mean, I definitely still struggle today with finding out how to deal with normal situations without losing my cool, without letting myself act out on my anger and frustration. I mean, it's been a, a learning experience over the past couple of years. Yeah, because it's, it would seem like prison would, I mean, it definitely would train you to be be on the more aggressive side and uh, be really aware of like disrespect and things like that. It does. And since everybody else is on the same wavelength of projecting a strength, projecting a threat, you just get used to that being the culture of the way things are. You know, to where like in a county jail, if somebody disrespects you by cutting the line to get their lunch tray first, when you're brand new to the system, you might be confused at how to deal with it or something like that. But after you've been around other people that are pretty much used to instantly responding to a disrespect or infraction of your space or anything like that. I mean, it just becomes part of who you are. 
to, you know, instantly fly off the handle and deal with things in a much different way. Was it something you had to learn that, you know, if I let this, uh, you know, little disrespect slide, then that's going to make life harder for me? I think I, I, I had adapted to the way things were fairly quickly. I mean, it's not like I learned my lesson after repeatedly getting abused. I mean, I'm smart enough to understand, you know, what's going on when people talk about the situation and seeing how other people react to things. And, you know, I've definitely seen enough, even in the county jail prior to getting to prison, to where the people that are entirely too mild-mannered to stand up for themselves just invited being abused constantly uh, that, that I just knew that I needed to adapt and started to become what it took not to have problems and not have to be in fights and not have to deal with people trying to get over and whatever else. And what kind of abuse would it be like some extortion, like of money? Would it be physical abuse or a combination or what kind of things would it be? I think that your type of people that look to abuse other people in prison or, or pretty much go about it in cowardly type ways to where, you know, they're, they're testing boundaries at first. Somebody that's looking to extort people or coerce them into sexual relations that they don't want to be involved in. Don't just pick somebody out and go at them for everything that they can get from the very first moment. It's a gradual process to where they see who uh, will give them food when they ask for it or like, hey, are you going to eat that? And whether they want to or not, you know, they might be scared and timid and just give it to them and mm -hmm. hope that that curries some favor. Or they might go to them and ask them, hey, can I borrow some canteen items and then just don't pay it back and see what they do about it. Or right. Press, pressing for weakness. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's not like you have real predators out there. They're definitely acting within the boundaries that they're already fairly certain that they can get away with. You see people that, that don't stand up for themselves and don't react to things in a forceful manner, continuously have their boundaries pressed back and pressed back and pressed back. To where next thing you know, people are coming up and, and touching their butts and saying they making jokes and oh telling everybody, oh, this is my new bitch and things like that. So seeing how things progress in other situations, I just knew like from the very beginning that, you know, we, we can't have that. So some of the abuse that you would see, I mean, would it just take the form of even just like verbal bullying? Like if they just, if there was like somebody who was a real pushover and didn't stand up for themselves, would they not necessarily get like physically abused or sexually abused, but they might just be like the butt of everybody's jokes kind of thing? Definitely. You know, it's like people are looking for some kind of release, some kind of entertainment, bad, toxic people look to make themselves feel better at other people's expenses and people that don't stand up for themselves, you know, whether it's somebody that has sexual offense definitely gets targeted out for like the worst of it. And then really anybody that looks weak, doesn't 
stand up for themselves definitely gets it and gets it and gets it. And, you know, and everybody has a breaking point, you know, at some point where they say, okay, enough's enough. And they swing on somebody pretty much eventually, but they find the ones that don't, that just cannot deal with the reality of a more intense community where people are constantly pushing at them. And I think that that's where you get a lot of the sexual enslavement from is once they find people that they can push to no end, eventually they think, okay, well, my plight will be a lot better if I choose up or get tied to somebody that's stronger. So they see and they get coerced in the idea that, hey, you know, if I enter into this lifestyle, then that aspect of abuse stops. Yeah, I'd imagine it's kind of, there might be some situations where they both sides feel it's kind of uh, consensual and see benefits in it for themselves, even though there's still elements of coercion. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot more of that type of stuff that goes on. They talk about on TV or people that have been in jail and they talk about like the, the risk of sexual assaults and things like that and prison rape. But I mean, at least in my experience, that level is really almost non-existent. I mean, I've heard of one actual rape in one prison that I was at in 15 and a half years. So, you know, going into prison where you think that everything is about, you know, a danger of being raped and sexual assault, when instead it's a lot more of predation by finding the weak people and pushing them into scenarios where they choose the way out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was reading too, like a lot of, apparently a lot of that stuff used to be way worse before they passed like a 2003 prison rape prevention act and there was more exposure about it. And uh, it used to be, apparently it used to be much worse back in like the 80s and, and, and 90s. Yeah, I mean, before my time, you know, and I don't know, really know how to judge either because, you know, from what we hear in the county jails and hear people talking, some of them, you know, come back for their court or for their appeals. And they talk about how bad prison is just to boost their own status in the community about, Oh, well, my, the prison I'm at is so rough and everybody's got shanks and there's rapes every day. And, Mm. you know, I'm here and I'm here to stand about it and everybody's supposed to look at them in awe. Right. It's like a badge of honor. Yeah. So you, so you don't really know exactly what is real and what is, Mm-hmm. Just conjecture. So uh, it seems like that that beginning county jail is so fundamental to what happens to you later. Like you know, it seems like if, for example, if you had been more violent or more aggressive in that situation, it seems like that would have spun off into a cycle of like you would have been placed to in, into a harder core, more hardcore, uh, you know, violent prison, and then you would have had to stick up for yourself even more and maybe do violent things to you know protect yourself. So it seems like that initial county jail experiences, would you say that's really a major turning point that maybe a lot of people don't realize when they go in? Yeah, I mean, it definitely could be. I mean, I wound up in a a fairly rough 
prison my first time. I, I, I had a couple of different uh, fights in the county jail, and then I had that inciting the riot infraction at the reception center that I told you about. So the first prison that I went to, uh, Appalachian Correctional Institution, uh, ACI, was one of the more notorious uh, and violent prisons that I could have went to as far as maximum security would have went to at the time. Mm. But I mean, I definitely had some factors in my case that made things a lot different. I guess as far as like personal experience, moving on from the uh, reception center, once I got to uh, ACI, the first job assignment that I was given was uh, at the law library and was trained to be a law clerk, which incidentally helped me out a lot for being young because nobody wants the, the, the law clerk inmate paralegal that is working on their case and helping them with their appeals and trying to get sentence reduction or, you know, to go back to a new trial to have problems and disappear to confinement because somebody else is abusing them. So because of the fact that I was working on people's cases and that's almost like a celebrity position mm-hmm. and I was, I was placed there because of my intelligence and education uh. and uh, that helped a lot. And also there was a incident. One of the very first things that happened to me was uh, I was doing some groundskeeping for the softball field and working with this uh, big, big muscle bound guy that they called him tank. You know, he'd already done probably 20, 25 years in prison and built like a brick shit house. And we were supposed to be working together uh, to uh, prepare the field to play a game. So I was uh, using the, uh, there's a clay rake, I guess, for texturing like the uh, infield. And uh, the other guy, he had the, the hose to spray some, some water so the, the, the ground wouldn't be so hard. So he, he was pressing my buttons, you know, trying to find out, you know, what he could get out of me. You know, a lot of, a lot of the, the sexual harassment things just starts out as, as uh, words and play games and jokes. And, you know, he's telling me I got like, I, you got a fat ass and you're, you're young and cute and all this. And I'm telling him, well, don't, don't, don't play this bullshit with me. I'm not with it today. So uh, he keeps on with it. And uh, I cussed him out. So he sprayed me with a hose and, uh, I tried, I swung this rake at him. I tried to take his whole fucking head off. And uh, the tine on the rake caught on his shirt sleeve. And instead of hitting him in the head with this rake like I intended to, it wound up just catching on his shirt and tearing it and kind of going across his back. I was terrified. I thought, okay, well, I really screwed up now. You know, this guy's going to try to kill me and kick my ass and everything else. But, uh, the coach that was out there had, had seen what happened, pulled both of us into his office, and the, the, the guy confessed to pressing my buttons, said that I was not out of line for trying to do what I did or anything else, and he had enough you know standing and respect amongst the, the guards plus the 
type of institution this was to where that was just uh, allowed as excusable behavior. And he didn't mess with me no more. And when that story got around, I had no more problems at that institution ever. Nobody tried to, to press any buttons or see where I was at or anything after that. How, how social were you in prison? Did you spend a lot of time by yourself or how, how did you see that balance going? I don't think you can ever really get away from too many people. I'm not like a complete isolated loner. I was always trying to find things to do, you know, uh, always like playing games, doing things with other people. So having a good social network makes things easier, passes the time keeps you entertained. So I learned like playing poker, playing bridge, sports gambling. <laughs> yeah, all the illegal shit. <laughs> was there a was there a pressure like even if you wanted to be really solitary, was there did you feel a pressure to be somewhat social or even like get in certain cliques in order to, you know, for self-protective reasons or how did you see that going? No, I mean, I see people that definitely do. I mean, you definitely have cliques and gangs and even though even the white people try to have like their little white supremacist thing going and, you know, that didn't really appeal to me either. Was was there a good amount of people in in the prisons you were at that were in gangs? Yeah, uh it not some of the worst ones to where people are pressured and feel like you have to be a part of it in order to survive. But it it was there for the people that wanted to be a part of it. But you didn't feel too pressured personally? No. I mean, basically, if, if you don't run up debts that you can't pay, or disrespect people by using racial slurs, or trying to be a problem maker, you know, there was no need to join something like that. So you said you'd played some poker and uh, been on some sports? Yeah, that's definitely a big part of prison culture. I mean, if you're not working, then there's not a whole lot to do if you're not outside. So gambling is a big part of what goes on to keep people entertained. So would you make your own poker chips or how did, how did that work? Uh, poker chips would usually be made like uh, out of old playing cards that uh, we would just cut in half and mark with like a marker usually in some kind of way that, you know, you're trying to make sure that somebody's not counterfeiting stuff on you. Not everybody can get a hold of a marker, so usually they'll, like, draw around the outline or put an initial or a special mark or something like that. And You know, they're counting their chips before and after the game to make sure nobody's trying to slip some stuff in. And How much were you guys playing for, and how often would you would you play? I I went through periods where, you know, I was playing like every day. Some places, you know, we wouldn't have jobs or uh, even if you did, you know, there's a game running a lot of the time. Usually chips would be like five cent, ten cent, something like that, that, you know, you could break down and have a few chips be equal to, you know, a common canteen item like a ramen soup or something like that or a pack of cigarettes or... This was uh, this was no limit. Actually, you know they play a lot of different games. I didn't play no limit Texas Hold'em until getting out of prison and going to a casino for the first time. Hmm. Most everything was like some form of 
uh, limit game, whether it's like uh, Omaha, Omaha high low with like, you know, a wild card type thing thrown in it or put on the board. I mean, there's a wild card draw. Yeah, not really that. It'd be more games you would never see in a casino, kind of like um, there'd be a a five-card stud-type game (laughs) that was (laughs) high-low, but they would use the jokers in the deck, and you would be able to draw or buy a card. was like one of the more popular games. Is that that how you got into poker? Because I know you've played after prison. Poker was... Definitely, you know, something that I picked up in prison more as an idea that, like, you could adhere to strategies that makes sense, whether it's following, like, a starting hand-type system or reading people, whatever you could possibly do to have an edge Mm -hmm. is something that, you know, I definitely learned that, like, given the right amount of intelligence or focus that, you know, you could do much better than the other person at. So did you study poker at all, read any books while you were in prison, or just more self-taught? Well, you know, after some time where I really got into it and got, like, a lot better, then I started looking for what kind of books and things that I could read. For a while... At certain places, you could get different kinds of books. Like, I think the first thing that I ever read was uh, a super system I had got sent in to me and read. And I had uh, subscribed to a Card Player magazine for mm-hmm. a number of years. I assume you were doing better than average in those games than most people. Were, were you ever um, concerned about winning too much? Is that ever a concern? Or people seeing your books and thinking you took it too seriously? I wasn't trying to have entirely too much. I think at at some level you're trying to have fun also because if you absolutely destroyed a game, then you're not ever going to get to play. You're not going to be invited into it. Uh, So nobody really got the idea that, like, I was too dangerous at it. Because even even though I was trying in, in the long run to be a winning player, there was enough gamble and enough craziness that allowed people to think that I wasn't absolutely perfect at it. And I'm sure the, uh, it wasn't like the stakes were such that you were like super excited about doing great in it anyway, I would imagine. Right. To, yeah. to, you were also motivated by just passing the time and having fun and all that. Yeah. It, it, it definitely <clears throat> served like two purposes. And so were there certain people that were, would set those games up or was it more of a communal thing? Like, Oh yeah, we all want to play. Yeah, I think in any, like, social circle, what the general agreement would be is to give everybody a chance in turn to host the game. So a prison uh, poker game usually would start by somebody buys in for $10. Then you give them 10% extra, so they would get $11 worth of chips. But at the same time, you're supplying the cigarettes, the snacks, and you're also cutting and raking the pot. Anybody that has their day to host the game, it's pretty hard to lose when when you run the game. So a lot of the players, even though they knew that some of the people they played with were way big winners compared to others, 
the idea that like after several losing sessions that they would get to host the game and make some money back mm-hmm. usually kept the games afloat. Interesting. So you would have it in your two person um, two person cell. It depends on the uh, prison and the rules. Most of the most of the places to avoid any kind of fights, sexual assaults, consensual sexual activity, anything else, you usually can't go in a cell that's not yours. Mm. Which means that like the game would have to be out on the yard during recreation time and most often like just in the dormitory. So a 60 person dormitory might have like four tables that people use to play in cards. You know, somebody might be playing spades at one and there might be a pinochle game at the other or people playing bridge, but usually there's one poker game in the dormitory. So there, even though your, uh, your cell door might be open for however many hours a day to allow you to come and go, other people couldn't go in there. Pretty much not. doesn't mean that people don't like sneak in and mm-hmm. try to, whenever they think the guards aren't looking to go in there for whatever reason, but mm-hmm. you, it'd be pretty hard to have like a whole poker game going on inside of a cell. It's just too small. Usually like a table with four seats will have like an eight person poker game going at it by allowing the four other people to sit at the corners or stand at the corners or. So aside, aside from the, um, the rake incident and the, um, the inciting the riot incident, were there any other uh, tense moments that st- that stand out? Yeah, one time uh, I was in the dormitory when a severe violent incident happened. I was in Missouri. This was after being transferred up there on an interstate compact uh, to be closer to family, where there was uh, an inmate that was very notorious for being very violent. So anytime they let this guy out, he was pretty notorious for getting in some kind of really severe incident of violence. And uh, he did not like child molesters. Well, nobody does. But, I mean, there's different ways that people go about dealing with it. I mean, usually they're picked on and harassed and given some real shitty treatment. So there was this older couple of guys that were living in one cell in our dormitory that was around this guy. He made it a point to ask them in particular to to get them to give him cigarettes or food items and things like that. And I guess, you know, over the course of a couple of days, these guys decided that they didn't want to be having this kind of relationship with the guy. And they told him no when he asked for another cigarette. He went and got another young kid to go along with him. And he goes in the cell and beats these guys severely. And used, um, at this institution, there's metal foot lockers that are like military-style things. They probably weigh like 15, 20 pounds empty. But he beat these guys up, used the metal foot lockers, and broke one guy's leg really severely messed him up and used a a knife to cut his initials into their foreheads. When they finally came around, when the guards came out to check on the dormitory, do their rounds, they found him in the cell beaten on these guys. They got in there and pulled him off. And to look in the cell, there was like blood all over the walls, all over the ground. 
and they immediately like locked us down had to ship these guys off for like immediate medical attention it was just a very very nasty scenario any other stories that stood out besides the besides that one yeah i was at one prison in florida where an inmate that had a uh, sexual assault charge had been working around a female officer for quite a while. I guess he developed some kind of fixation or something going on. Wasn't close enough to see or know what happened. We just found out after the case. But apparently he raped and killed the guard. That was a, a fairly serious incident that happened. Mm. So it sounds like you uh, you witnessed a lot of things, but it sounded like you it sounds like you were respected enough that you didn't get involved in that many altercations yourself. No, no, I was fairly lucky. I mean, looking back on things, you know, given my age, going in young, definitely could have been a, a recipe for things being far, far worse. Were there any kind of slang terms people used that were part of prison culture? A person that gets abused and doesn't do anything about it or is in a coerced sexual relationship could be a punk or like use it as a verb to punk somebody. Shivs, shanks, common words. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between prisoner and inmate and and convict con okay i could that one that one i've got a good one to explain the idea of convict is usually a term that's reserved for somebody that definitely follows that code that mentality to where you know you're not talking to guards you're not snitching you're not uh doing certain things you know you're not a somebody that gets walked on and pushed over by people. So they really try to phase that out in order to, you know, like if you could change the language, you could change the behavior. Starting out, you know, the first prisons I was at, you know, the even the, the, the guards, the inmates and people would definitely use uh, the difference in language between like inmate and convict to announce how they thought about somebody or how they treated things. A lot of things started changing. Like I told you about how the system evolved to where they wanted to make sure that the inmates weren't running the asylum and the prison rape act and things like that. They wanted to bring back control. So they made it a big deal to phase out the idea of using the word convict because of the connotations that that's a different kind of person than what an inmate would be. You know, inmate can almost be derogatory if they use it the right way. That was what I heard. I read that it was, inmate was kind of derogatory. Like it meant like you were like a good little inmate, like you you did what you were told. And then like prisoner was more neutral. And then uh, convict was kind of like reserved for like, yeah, they're, they're hardcore, uh, you know, more respectful. Yeah, it was it was definitely like that. But I see like even to the time that I was getting out in 2011, where they wanted to make sure they took that idea out. They didn't want people to be convicts. 
Right. Uh, there was a lot of information campaign and attack on it to where, you know, obviously you have some kind of rehabilitation programs, whether it's like some kind of nonviolent classes that you have to take or self-help things. And they, they started making it known the convict idea originated with, I think it was out like California, where police officers that got uh, the original group of them that went for some kind of who knows corruption or mm -hmm. uh, organized crime, whatever it was, were the original convicts. Hmm. Where they had the code where they didn't tell on each other or divulge information or talk to the guards and so on and so forth. So part of like the restructuring of the collective consciousness was to assault the idea that the convict class and mentality was something that, you know, your average prisoner, criminal class person would want to be connected to. Well, so it was really propaganda and they were basically spreading that that was a, a cop uh, kind of code. Exactly. Wow. So when they use the when they use the word convict, for example, how would they use it? You used to hear things being said like, I don't have a problem with convicts. It's you inmates that cause me all the problems mm. or it, it definitely use it in a way to draw a line between certain people. Gotcha. Or like if you have an altercation with somebody, sometimes people do the little threat display and talk loud and, you know, somebody might say, well, I'm a convict. I'm not an inmate. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. I'm just going to bring it to your face mm -hmm. or certain things. You know, people will use that word as a way to announce that if you create a problem with me, it's not going to go the way that you want it to. So, I mean, it could definitely be thrown up as a barrier to make somebody think twice about creating a problem with them. Mm -hmm. Any other words come to mind that were interesting from a prison culture kind of perspective? The, the way people use some terms to describe like their relationship in sexual ways, like they would say tied, like you, you can't be married to somebody, but I guess like an old school convict lingo type thing would be like, oh, those two people are tied. Or somebody would say, oh, that's my people. Mm. You know, that would mean not only are like they cool or whatever, but there is a deeper relationship there. And that's there a lot of times, like goes back to what I was saying about, you know, you're not going to let somebody disrespect your wife or whatever. So if an obvious homosexual person is walking around and you know they catch some flack or harassment from somebody they'll say well so and so is my people or i'm mm. tied with so and so just to be like okay well you know i'm not the one to to have that with you know i'm afforded some kind of respect plus you know like if you're if you're somewhere long enough i mean you might have a a prison that's got 800 people in it or 1200 people in it you know you you get to know everybody eventually anyways so it's one of those terms that, like, it identifies a relationship between a group of people. How common would you say it was? I mean, how many people did you see that had the, um, you know, homosexual relationship? Oh, it could be fairly common. Five, ten percent of the population might have uh, a defined relationship like that. 
And then a lot of those people apparently, you know, wouldn't wouldn't call themselves homosexual outside of prison, right? Is that been your experience too? You definitely have a group of people that like they wouldn't be gay if they were not in prison, you know. I've heard about the more the more aggressive, uh, you know, the predator type people that coerce people. A, a good amount of them don't, wouldn't identify themselves as gay, and they would presumably. Uh, be heterosexual on the outside yeah okay that that gives me prompts me to uh answer one of the things about uh language is like the predator type people one common uh term for that is a booty bandit Uh, a booty bandit is a type of person that is like on the hunt looking for people that they can coerce into those kinds of relationships and Mm-hmm. for people and do that kind of stuff and you know it's almost like it's more of like a power type thing to them because you'll see uh some people with that reputation that just try to attract all the young kids like they might have four or eight or a dozen kids that they have like some kind of relationship with and you know i don't think that they're having a sexual relationship with all of them but it's more of like a a power and status type thing to right. where they, they definitely keep them around you know they go to the yard together and play basketball or hang out do whatever they do play dungeons and dragons if that's their thing or they just want the status and the prestige of having that circle of the the young kids and and a lot of them they find uh, a protective relationship out of it yeah it's almost like a pimp kind of mentality even if they're not even if it's not entirely sexual like there might be some other monetary kind of coercion or whatever going on there yeah yeah you know communal use of money or who knows what else they do so people play dungeons and dragons in in prison huh yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's fairly common. Huh, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, doesn't go, definitely doesn't align with my uh, my st- my stereotypes. No, it it really doesn't. But I mean, you think about it. You know, it's people come from a variety of backgrounds, have all kinds of different interests, and mm-hmm. you know, usually there's people get into clicks versus shared interests i mean there might be a group of people that usually dormitories got four five six people that their thing is to to have a a campaign going every night (laughs) (laughs) uh were there any sections of the areas of the prison that were known for being more dangerous like for example, maybe they weren't covered by cameras or something like that. Were there any areas that stood out like these are areas you have to be especially careful in? Yeah, you know, it just depends on the place. The older prisons could have showers that doesn't have shower stalls. It might just be a room with eight shower heads in it, and it could be kind of rough. The week that I spent over there, the white kids would all go to the shower at the same time. And then when they were through with it, all the people of color would all have their shower hour. It was it was pretty well knowledge that like you didn't want to shower when your people were not there at the same time. Mm-hmm. Some places could be different. One prison I was at, a few of the booty bandits 
uh, ran the kitchen. So, I mean, like if you were a young person, uh, you didn't want to be working and assigned to the kitchen. Some of the yard areas, people would go and, and fight behind the bleachers. It just depends on the geography of what's going on. Maybe could be the people that's assigned to a particular location. You know, you just never know. Was there a certain way you could, it was expected you could challenge someone in like a fight scenario? Was there like a certain protocol that was established for like, I got a problem with you. We have to handle this in some way. Yeah, in a way, it's that kind of borders on like a slang thing of the idea of, of calling somebody out. Like if you have a problem with somebody or you just feel like you have to handle that in a certain way, then you just announce the fact that, you know, we need to fight about this. And that would just be like calling out somebody. And, you know, it'd probably be way worse for you to not answer that. Because like if, if somebody calls you out and you refuse to fight, that's probably like the worst possible thing that you could do in prison for your reputation, your safety. If they think that like you will back away from that kind of announced fighting, then it's pretty much open season on you. So even if you just stood your ground, even if you got got beat up, even if you stood your ground, that would that be enough to at least set some boundaries? Definitely. I think that um, not everybody can be a great fighter. You know, not everybody can do that. But if they know that you will fight, you know, not only is there consequences, because, you know, you get caught for fighting, you're going to confinement for 30, 60 days or whatever, losing your privileges. The idea that you're man enough to face a situation that, you know, you're going to lose or you're going to deal with the repercussions, then that affords you enough respect really to get by mm-hmm. both situations, even if you don't win. When it comes to shivs and shanks, does it seem like, because some of those, you know, some of those shivs are very uh, thin and people can be stabbed multiple times and still live through that. Do you feel like that's also almost uh, in some senses kind of a, a symbolic thing too, where it's like people know that they might stab someone a lot and that person will end up being fine. So it's almost like just a standing your ground thing too. Do you feel like that applies to some of those situations in the sense yeah. that they, they know that, they, that they're not necessarily going to kill somebody. They just want to send a statement. Yeah. I think that like, cause you can make a shank or a shiv out of a lot of different things. I mean, it could be as simple as a, a sharpened toothbrush, or it could be uh, a tool handle with a really nice blade made out of a sharpened tin can set into it. I think it, it comes down to the mentality of the person using it, you know, what their actual intent is. You know, I've seen people that have lost a lot of their respect and, you know, they don't know what to do about it. And they're not trying to seriously injure somebody and get time added to their sentence, but they'll still use something that is going to damage somebody, you know, it could be a not very sharpened toothbrush, but if they go and they poke somebody with it a bunch of times and, you know, it gets out that, 
they did that. And it's pretty hard. I don't think I've ever seen somebody that was involved in the stabbing that word didn't get around enough that they wound up going to confinement and getting having to go through that whole ordeal. So there's some people that, that take that route. But I think they know that if they don't make anything really dangerous and they don't hurt somebody severely, then they don't have to worry about any kind of additional charges or whatever, and it's not going to mess up their release date. And, you know, they might just stay in administrative segregation for their last eight, 10 months or whatever, and then still get out without having that mess up their release. Speaking of the, the shivs still, was it kind of publicly known who had them or where they were stored in some sort of communal sense, or was it all really kept on the down low? I think it's really down low. I think not many people would try to have one or have it be public knowledge just because of the seriousness of the charge that they could give you. But then again, you know, I probably wasn't in the absolute worst prisons in my state and definitely not in the worst of the nation that, you know, it could be a lot, lot different. You know, there's places that I'm sure would would not be possible to survive without one. I mean, I've heard of some notorious places where I think probably everybody wants to know where they can get one on on hand if they need it. I was watching uh, Louis Theroux's show last night where he visited Miami uh, prison uh, jail. While he was, uh, the guard was showing him around, they found a, a shiv in a, like a hollow prison bar. The guard was saying like they're super prevalent, at least in that, in that jail. So yeah, like you said, like you said, there's probably some that are, it's all over the place. It must be a case almost of like mutually assured destruction kind of thing. Like the th- just the threat of uh, having it keeps you safe, I'd imagine. Yeah, and just depends on what you can get a hands-on. A lot of places you have a combination lock, and if you have one of those, you really don't need anything much stronger than that. Just the threat of somebody putting a lock in a sock and beating somebody with it is enough to to really be a deterrent and to uh, protect yourself or hurt somebody if you really needed it too. So, I mean, if you have access to one of those, you know, you probably don't see too much that's very much serious. I mean, either somebody's making it because they they want out of that prison and out of that situation or the problem, the beef that they have is serious enough to actually want to try to kill somebody over. Right, because sometimes people are will purposely be violent in order to get put in uh, solitary, right? To escape the situation, whatever situation they're in. Yeah, usually if there's a serious enough of a threat, then they'll transfer you to another prison. The problem with that is, is very often they're aware of the fact that people will cry wolf trying to get away from, could be a drug debt, a gambling debt, unwanted sexual attention, or anything else, then... They don't want to have to just transfer people to a new place and do that paperwork and everything else. There needs to be something to substantiate it. And I think I've seen several times more situations where people will make a weapon and plant it on somebody, put it in their locker, put it in their bed or their work area, and then report it that the other person has the weapon and is threatening them 
Oh. And then if they find the weapon, that lends enough credence to their story to where they get what they want out of it. So, I mean, that that's something that happens quite a lot. So they frame the other other guy and then say, oh, yeah, look, they, they're dangerous and they're, they might be trying to, to hurt me. Yeah. Uh, is there the fear, too, though, if, you know, say, say you felt endangered and you wanted to, you know, try to get out of that situation and tell the, um, the guards or whatever, is there, is there the danger then that you become known as a snitch or whatever? Yeah, because uh, even the guards will talk amongst themselves or tell certain inmates that, like, so-and-so is trying to get a transfer by saying that somebody is threatening them or something like that. And they'll even investigate these claims. You can't count on the prison officials to have any kind of tact whatsoever and trying to get, like, the absolute story. They'll just, like... Might be the dorm sergeant that hopes that he'll have the better job of investigator someday to try to get to the bottom of whatever kind of story and gather information to pass along outside of the system of investigation. So he mm-hmm. might be buddy buddy with certain people and spill everything he knows in hoping that somebody will tell him the story and give him some facts that nobody had before. And, you know, unfortunately, it happens a lot. Used to be uh, like the convict code to where, you know, certain people weren't going to tell the guards anything. And I saw over the course of 15 years, the system change and the attitude change to where it's almost 50-50. The people that will try to pretend that they follow a certain kind of, of code and the way they deal with things versus people that they don't have any problem. They'll talk, snitch, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, another slang word is jeffing. Jeffing is trying to curry some favor with the guards by conversation or acting cool or knowledgeable or like Jeff, the name J E F F. Yeah. So, so Jeffing would be kind of like being a kiss ass. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, dry snitching to where you may not say that inmate Roberts has been selling weed, but they might say that, uh, Oh, I smell weed down at the end of that dormitory all the time. You haven't you haven't told on this person specifically, mm-hmm. but but you have thrown some information out there that is going to lead them on the hunt. Yeah, so it, I'd imagine it really puts the people that are being abused or threatened in a bad situation because they could theoretically get out of it by going to report about that. But if they if their story is not believed immediately or if they have to stay where they are for a while, then they run the risk of exacerbating the situation even, even worse, huh? Probably one of the most common reasons why people try to get transferred from one institution to another is the fact that they've run up a gambling or a drug debt. More often than not, prison officials are just going to refuse to allow the person to continue to claim a protective custody or 
stay in incarceration. They'll just tell them, okay, well, you have to get out. You have to go back to general population. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of them will go back and find that word had gotten out that they told on the person that they owed the money to or about some things that had happened. And then it becomes a situation where they really do get some violence put against them because not only had they ran up a debt, but they had also caused a lot of scrutiny. If we have a, a poker game in our dorm for every night, but the next thing you know, officers get tired of somebody going into check-in, protective custody, they might not allow us to have a poker game anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might come in and shake down, search, take everything away. And uh, if they decide that they're not going to let the poker game go on anymore, well, you might have a, a dozen angry guys when they when they send the person back to the cell and bring them back to the dormitory from confinement. They don't have a good excuse for where they were at, and it's mm. common knowledge that they were trying to escape by saying it. Then then things could go real bad for them in there. Mm. Yeah, I was reading about how you know one of the explanations for why. People resort to violence uh, so easily, you know, with the feeling disrespected is just because they, you know, they have such uh, low self-worth that that's, you know, one of the few things still available to them is is sticking up for their themselves in a in an aggressive manner. Because, you know, when you don't have any sense of worth, then those things become much more important because that's really all, all that's left to you is this immediate sense of, you know, respect in the moment. Yeah. Um, and then you take, you know, you take, you make it harder for these prisoners to gain self-worth, you know, in the prison and out. And when you, they get out of the prison, you know, it's hard for them to get jobs and you can search their records online, even if their records are expunged or whatever. And everybody, you know, it becomes so much easier these days with the internet to, to know what people have done and it's harder, you know, makes it so much harder for them. So it just, the way we do prisons here just seems set up so backwards. I mean, in, in the sense that it's, it makes a lot of people worse for one thing in the, in the worst prisons. And then the, 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 the fact you have to keep paying for it for so many years when you get out. So do you feel like your prison experience has made you more stoic? Definitely. At first it did. It was, it was a big change to getting out and trying to figure out, you know, Hey, what am I going to do with life? I thought that I would be able to get a job or to start a business and i you know ran into some roadblocks to where out there in portland i went to the um uh goodwill was mm -hmm. was somebody that um the caseworker that i had picked up out there said that uh goodwill would hire people with felony records and help them get on the track they wound up refusing to work with me because of the seriousness of my offense. They didn't uh, work with uh, violent felonies. You know, I see so many situations where things are rigged against people that have come from various backgrounds, you know, whether it's uh, the person that had a weed charge and a, a fraud charge when they were a teenager to somebody in my situation that has a, a serious violent felony. Were there other experiences when you applied for jobs where people were um, rude to you or unreasonable? Not really rude per se. Just last month, 
I did telemarketing when I was in college. Uh, the first time when I was a teenager in Missouri and down in Florida, close to where all this happened. So I have a, a good amount of experience with doing uh, fundraising and uh, with sales. The interview had gone great. You know, I explained my previous experience and how it would translate to what he was doing in particular. And he was ready to hire me on the spot, you know, and they get to the point of the interview where everything's wrapping up. And he's like, is there anything else that you want to say? And I told him, I said, OK, well, I also have a felony record and it's, you know, not exactly what it sounds like. You know, this is how the situation happened. And, he, you know, he heard me out. But at the end of it, he said that uh, he was glad that uh, I told him up front because uh, it saved him the trouble of hiring me and firing me when he looked it up on his own. And they didn't call me back. And that was the end of it as far as that job went. There's definitely uh, a lot of barriers for people that have records from moving on, you know, whether it's in housing or in jobs. And whether people think about it or not, you know, even my experience, you know, having uh, lots of years where you're living in a population of isolation and the accepted code of conduct is, you know, aggressive response to being challenged and things like that makes it hard to have a relationship. So in a way, you know, there's so many things at once to overcome. You know, if you can't do one or the other, then, you know, that's going to get passed down to your children. It's going to affect your relationship status to wind up being homeless, you know, and there's there's nowhere out there that they can just say, OK, well, we know exactly how to work with this. So if you had uh, uh, wishes, like if somebody was listening to this and wanted to uh, give you some sort of job, are there, are there certain jobs that you're looking for if you had like your ideal wish list right now? The jobs that I still try to apply to, you know, when I notice like a call center place that I haven't applied to or a telemarketing place, that's something that I do just to get by. You know, I did poker for quite a while. I traveled across the country. Uh, Went to Vegas earlier this year. Uh, a cousin of mine had a friend that uh, had a call center, and uh, he promised me that he had a furnished apartment out there that uh, I could stay in. I get out there, and it's pretty much like a crack house. So I stayed in Vegas, like jumping hotel rooms every night until I could come back. And where are you now? You're located? I'm in Rhode Island now. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to... Uh, move to Massachusetts, but the the rent is high. I'm doing uh, Amazon Flex delivery now with my girlfriend in her name. Both of us, you know, work in that. The latest thing I told the caseworker that I have that uh, I enjoyed doing that. You know, gets me some exercise, gets out of the house, and if I could do that on my own, uh, they do background checks for that too. But uh, the the newest one to try was uh, hopefully, uh, they said that they would write some letters of recommendation that they overlook my uh, record, you know, given the circumstances of the case and given that they feel like I'm ready for work and can deal with the situation. And uh, 
the senator office up here has been pretty helpful when things go. So the the next move is to try to get him to back some kind of proposition to a corporate contact that I could do some Uber or do some delivery and get approved into the system despite having the record. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was really ideal, then, you know, I would like to do some kind of counseling or work, like I told you, with other people that's been in the same situation, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, just going through this has been an eye opener to where somebody coming out brand new trying to work and help people try, that are actually, you know, trying to make it a uh, difference and, and to do well instead of going back. You know, I think I have a lot of insights and ability to help people, you know, overcome those hurdles and, and that barrier and become somebody that they would want to, to try to be to stay out. Yeah, I really like the idea of you writing your story. I mean, I think that uh, <clears throat> I think that would be a great, a great thing to do. I was reading this book, uh, Writing My Wrongs, it's called, by Shaka yeah. Shangor. Have you heard about that? Yeah, that's a that's a really good one. I mean, he's definitely got more of a street take and a street angle mm-hmm. on that. But, you know, he's definitely in the right place. Yeah, and yours would be, yeah, yours would obviously be very different. But, like, you know, I, I think, I feel like the the world needs more of those kind of books, you know, from, from different points of view and, and, and letting people who are experiencing that know they're not alone and showing them, you know, yeah, like it gets better for one thing and, and showing how people have survived and the challenges they've faced, you know? Yeah, actually, you know, seeing his success and reading his book is what inspired me to think that I could do it myself. You know, I don't know if there's like somebody out there that's listening has got, you know, they're an agent, knows how to, to guide somebody through the process and, and get them to produce something that they could turn into some work. But trying to write the story from start to finish and make sure it's coherent and in order and the grammar's right is it's a lot for me just to try to tackle for myself. I, I it was stressful trying to do it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I would imagine that'd be pretty tough at being so personal. Yeah. Do, do you ever, uh, you ever see your co-defendant uh, ever again after the trial? No, after we both got out, uh, I think he found me on a social media on a Facebook or something like that and tried to uh, strike up like some kind of relationship, friendship type thing. And, you know, I just, I felt like that wasn't the best thing for me and, you know, just made it clear that I'd prefer to put a wall up on that. And I haven't heard anything from him since. Gotcha. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, any other things you wanted to share? Uh, what about how, do, how would people get in touch with you? Uh, my email address is bnmoots, M-O-O-T-S, at gmail.com, or the Twitter address uh, that you have that you contact me through is uh, Real Fishy Donk. Yeah, a little poker-related uh, poker handle there. Yeah, and then uh, the Instagram account that I have is uh, Chip Porn Star. Except they wouldn't let me use porn, so I spelled it P-A-W-R-N. Trying to make the, 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 the combination word like chip porn, porn star. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's another, uh, if people don't know, that's another poker. Uh, yeah, chip porn is a thing in poker, just to... So, yeah. So it sounds less less dirty to the people that don't know that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Well, I appreciate it, Ben. Uh, it's been um, great talking to you. I appreciate you you taking the taking the time and the effort to um, to tell your story. Yeah, no problem. It was good talking to you too. Okay. I'll see you on Twitter. All right. Appreciate it, man. Have a good one.